This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Welcome, this is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast show with Andrea and Alice. Our community is made up of so many amazing and diverse groups of people, as are the programs on Joy 94.9. There is something there for everyone. A Little Pot of Joy is where we highlight just some of these amazing programs. We would like to show our respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, of elders past and present of the Kulin Nation, whose land we are broadcasting from. We're opening the evening with a podcast from the woods, Mental Health. Mark and Dean, along with new intern Robbie, put their emphasis on Mental Health Week and World Mental Health Day, joined by Craig Ingrie. Craig talks about his life experience with mental illness and the skills that he has developed, including the practice of mindfulness. Guys also discuss triggers and how you can identify them. So if you just can't listen to the show live, podcasts are available for download from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash the woods. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast. Um, <laughs> and we are talking mental health this evening. Um, yes, and we, we are. Hearing from Craig about his experience growing up um, and more recently with the mental health condition. But uh, if you are listening and you are needing support, you can go to the World Mental Health Day website, which is 1010, so 1010.org.au. Uh, and they have a number of resources and, and supports uh, that you can access from the community on that website. Or you could always call Beyond Blue on 1300 22 Forty-six, thirty-six. Of course, there's always Lifeline on 13, 11, 14. Or, of course, the Gay and Lesbian Switchboard with 9663-2939. Now, Robbie, you had a question. Yeah, Craig, you were talking before, before that fabulous Madonna, Madonna break we just had. You were talking about um, mindfulness, which is something that I'm really interested in, uh, the concept of, of you know, being aware, being in the moment. Is that something that you would practice every day? Absolutely, yeah. Ever since I sort of um, worked out what mindfulness was, uh, it's something that I've sort of made a, a bit of a, God, I hate this term, lifestyle choice. But it, it's, it's something that I certainly have um, made a big part of my day. And it extends into whether it's, you know, spending time with my dog Maggie, who is my, you know, love and joy, um, or whether it's gardening or even just doing the housework, you know. You've mentioned um, the mindfulness a couple of times now. Can you expand what that actually is because I'm, I'm not aware of it okay mindfulness um it's it's become a bit of a buzz term these days in yes. fact a lot of people are talking about mindfulness um i sort of started using mindfulness um shortly after david's death um it, it's basically just a way of stilling the mind and, and it's really great um a, a really great vehicle particularly with anxiety disorders mm-hmm. um to stop you thinking about what's going to happen next and to help with your depression disorders which are usually about thinking about what's happened yeah um it brings you to right here and now um if if i was finding myself in a situation like with you guys sitting here around the table and finding myself suddenly getting anxious uh, mindfulness would be something as simple as as placing my hand on the table and getting a sense of uh the texture of the table and how it's feeling in my hand and and you know the the temperature in the room um what i can hear in the room uh what i can sort of see around me and, and bringing everything centered and now and it's really important to sort of stay 
present yeah. and, and focused and um, not get uh, too bogged down in the minutiae of what's flicking around in your mind, yeah. um, which is either, as I said, is either thinking about the past or worrying about the future. Um, for me, the past is depression. The future is anxiety because um, once you can sort of uh, just stop and, and focus on the present, that's mindfulness. Um, it's, it's a form of meditation mm. to some extent. Um, uh, meditation is probably one of the most effective tools to cope with um, anxiety and depression. Uh, yoga is brilliant um, as well. Um, but mindfulness can be practiced at any time by anyone walking down the street, sitting on a tram, you know, sitting in your office. Um, it's very portable. Just absolutely. Awareness of breath, awareness of the moment, being in the moment. It's, absolutely. It's, it's, it's absolutely. beauty in the moment. It's, and we only have this moment. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah. And if you create a really good moment now, it creates a happy memory for tomorrow. Um, but uh, mindfulness is, has certainly given me some great um, skills for coping in really um, stressful situations. I usually find I'm usually working in a career um, which is really stressful. For example, the last couple of years working in politics with the Victorian Greens, which I adore. Um, but again, working in um, some seriously you know, combative environments sometimes can, uh, you know, make you um, a, a bit jittery. So yeah, mindfulness is uh, is uh, something that I would recommend everyone sort of, you know, get involved in. And uh, you know, there, there are so many different levels to mindfulness that you can sort of, you know, uh, practice and and uh, explore. Who knew housework could be th- therapeutic? Absolutely. Gosh, you know, any time I'm doing the housework, Reese comes in, my partner, and says, what are you stressed about? What's going on? But, you know, whatever's cathartic, you know. Uh, yeah, it, uh, m- my partner comes, if I'm doing my housework, he says, what have you done wrong? Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> I think it's just about doing things with purpose as well yeah. like, and, and thinking about what you're doing, not just sort of um, glibly walking around with your duster, you know, make something of it. And, uh, you know, those sort of moments of quiet reflection um, are really important. And, you know, I, I will back on some Madonna like we just heard and uh, yeah and we played that just for you borderline you got I know it, yeah, got it? Yeah. I know yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, a theme it's a theme, <laughs> it's a theme yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other things we touched on before um, and it's something I want to talk about is triggers um, obviously we talked about the death of your previous partner and grief um, I know in my life uh, grief is something that does trigger uh, you know depression myself um did you did you find the same or would you know what your triggers are oh gosh there are so many triggers um but it's really important to actually uh stop and think if you are going through a period of uh sadness um uh to to quantify whether it's going to be whether it's actually just um you know you're having a bit of a blue moment or whether in fact it's depression and working out what's actually triggered this sometimes it's absolutely nothing it's just you know a a non-set of um, melancholia Mm. um you know so if if, um i go through um a period of sadness and some days i can be feeling sad or some days it could last for three months like a recent bout um where you just feel like you're about to cry every moment yeah uh and and sort of you know it did end my career in politics in the end because i was thinking no this is just you know it's not a happy place for me i need to be back in you know in a slightly more creative and vibrant sort of um environment um grief is certainly uh, a trigger to depression um that there's no denying that um the loss of someone who uh, is your companion whether it's your your life partner or your best friend or 
uh, a colleague from work or just a mate from the pub or someone that you've probably never ever met but has made some sort of impact on your life yeah. uh, just through your own social circles. Um, you know, it, it questions your own, you question your own mortality. And, and, and certainly we know it within the bear community. We know it within the, um, <clears throat> the, 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 the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer community um, that suicide is a, is a major problem. And, uh, you know, in the last, uh, say, six years, I've lost probably um, around one person a year to suicide. And every year it just seems to be bang, bang. Um, and it's been ongoing. And, uh, you know, and if it's not a friend of mine, then it's somebody else I'm, I've heard of or it's somebody that's talking to me who's contemplating it. And certainly uh, suicidal thoughts is something that's with me um, daily and it's something that I work with my therapist um, pretty strongly with. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, w- when those sort of um, triggers sort of hit where you, you know, you just want to, you know, take your life, you've, you've actually got to take stock stock and, and, and maybe practice some mindfulness to pull yourself out of that rut of like why are you thinking this um, another term for triggers um, uh, is called schemas mm. and uh, trying to identify what your schemas are and your schemas can go way back into childhood and certainly um, there were many years or the past decades where I would um, blame my mood for something that happened in the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or when I was a baby or what my mother said to me that day after school or what that kid did to me in the classroom that day. And um, you've actually got to sort of, I think, stop blaming all that stuff, you know, yeah. because, you know, it's, you know that, that horrible term shit happens, but shit does happen. And it happens to all of us. Um, mm. the, the, the sooner you let that stuff go as, as something that's just happened, um, I think the happier you will be and uh just sort of take um ownership of your um your physical health and your mental health and and your uh your your friendships and your networks and making sure that it's right for you there's a great line around um where you know before you're diagnosing yourself with depression make sure you're just not surrounded by a bunch of assholes and yeah quite often in the community you can find yourself in that position Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so just again uh you're not alone if you are experiencing um symptoms of depression or anxiety or or mental health condition you can contact beyond blue on 1300 22 46 36 or lifeline on 13 11 14 you're not alone you're here in the woods on joy 94.9 joy Let's go. 
Joy 94.9 and this is A Little Pot of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from Saturday Magazine, Totally On Board. This week, Peter's joined by Tass and Ian and Martin Foley, Minister for Everything. Martin has asked for his thoughts on how same-sex couples could now adopt legally. You can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash Saturday Magazine or download it for free from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. Big news this week, Tass, the announcement that there will be some legislation amended to allow same-sex couples to adopt, or the intention is to allow same-sex couples to adopt. Martin Foley is the Minister for Equality, as we call him here, Minister for Everything, everything. MOE for Joy 94.9. Martin Foley, good morning. Good morning, Pete. Good How's everyone? How are we? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. You've You've had a busy couple of weeks. Yes, yes. This was a um, big week in the Parliament this week where we introduced uh, two further bills as part of our equality agenda. The main one being the adoption amendments, a bill to remove discrimination against the children and parents of same-sex families yes. that's in our laws, and another one to, in the confines of post the High Court's decision on marriage equality, to at least give relationship recognition to overseas marriages and relationship registrars in other jurisdictions to give them the force of law as far as we can. That's fantastic. So that's really about providing recognition to overseas uh, unions? Correct. Can that, Martin, be contravened by the federal government? I know there was a move in Canberra some years ago to recognise... overseas marriages and that's sort of what led to the marriage amendment bill 2004 i believe where uh, you know it was exclusively between a man and a woman can that be overridden right. by the federal government in a, if if you guys take it up i know in territories it can but i'm i'm not sure if it can be in state governments you you you're right in regards to territories but in regards to the state this has been specifically written around the restrictions that the high court uh, put in place a couple of years ago and um until such time as the federal parliament, hopefully sooner rather than later, bites the bullet and deals with marriage equality, we committed to making sure that within the confines of that act, we give as much legislative and you know, community recognition to uh, same-sex unions and marriages from other jurisdictions, whilst um, keeping the pressure up for the federal parliament to allow conscience vote. Great. We're actually leading the way now in Australia with a lot of legislation, in particular for same-sex couples. Are we becoming the pink state? Uh, well, I think we'd just like to become the decent state. You know? we, we put on the mantle of being the progressive capital of Australia. And if anything, the whole framework about recognising the missing plank in equality is the rights and uh, support that we give to LGBTI community. And these two pieces of legislation, uh, the Gender and Sexuality Commissioner, the Safe Schools Coalition, uh, the, new task the revi- yeah, yeah, the two, the Human Services and the Justice Task Force, the whole of government group. And I tell you what, you know what cheered me up, uh, other than those two bills that we introduced this week, Victoria put out its um, nominations for Australian of the Year. Ah, oh, yes, and now. Anna and, Brown. And Anna Brown. Very and close to Margo us here. Pick. Oh, and a young and trans Margo person pick. as well. Yeah, mm. but for Australian, junior Australian of the year. Mm. So, you know, I'd like to think there's some progress being made where 
fantastic leadership like that, role models like that, start to get recognised. Mm, Anna Brown and is currently... To... Sorry, Martin, I didn't mean to interrupt. But that, and, and that's why we've got to take, bite the bullet, for goodness sake, of just giving legal recognition to those hundreds, if not thousands, of families out there, families who exist now, who operate in this legal haze of having their rights unrecognised, confusion over the relationship to the children they love and raise. For goodness sake, in 2015, isn't it about time yes. that we sent a message to those families that we value them the same as every other family? Absolutely. I'd like to, I'd like to think that... Um, you know, we're a mature enough society to get that bill off and running as quickly as we can over the next month and mm. start that happening. So, Martin, going back to the uh, gay adoption um, bill, I understand that there are two acts that are being amended. One's the Adoption Act and the other one's the Equal Opportunity Act. Is that correct? That, that's correct. And can so you tell us a little bit Act, about what the second one's about? Because that's, that's... I can. Great. So, there is a defence in the Equal Opportunity Act that says if an organisation is uh, acting in accordance with um, uh, the, the key tenets of its faith, and there's been legal cases as to what that actually means, uh, then that is a defence against discrimination in the Act itself. So we commissioned uh, eminent lawyer and former mm. um, parliamentary counsel, Eamon Moran, to do us a review of the Adoption Act with the, with the guiding principle of we want to remove all discrimination. That was our election commitment. So we said what we're looking for is, a, is if we're going to do this properly, how do we remove discrimination LGBTI families uh, under this Act? And he came back after consulting widely taking public submissions and said, well, the obvious one is remove the definition that, that from 1984 that adoption can only be for from two people, a man and a woman. So, you know, that, um, it was a bit of a walk-up start. But he also said if you were going to be serious, then you needed to remove the potential for discrimination against LGBTI families that allowed a very small number of you know, young children adoption through sort of the stranger adoption thing, um, which is about bumps around at under 30 a year on average, right. uh, year in, year out, that you would have to remove the ability of those organisations to carry that out on behalf of the state, yes. that defence. But if you're going to do it, if you're going to do this important work, if the state said we weren't to have any discrimination, well, you couldn't really have... Uh, a faith-based organisation using that defence. And what's been the response to that recommendation, Martin? Well, uh, so there's four organisations that the state authorises to do adoptions on its behalf. Uh, And three of those are faith-based. Two of those three uh, have indicated publicly support for the bill and one uh, has indicated uh, it has concerns and has forecasted that those concerns might see it reconsider whether it will continue to provide those services. Um, now, Martin, we, I'm we, sure our, we, our listeners would be interested to know who they are. Are you able to name okay, them? Okay, so, so, so the, the two organisations that have indicated that they do support the bill are Anglican Adoption and Uniting Care. Yeah. Uh, and Catholic Care has indicated that it doesn't support the bill. Yes. Now, Which, we recognise that they're right and that's their... Uh, uh, ability to do so, uh, but we are fairly
clear that we took an election commitment to remove discrimination yes. in this space. We have a, a well-thought-out, um, good piece of work that's based on extensive consultation that no-one has picked a hole in in terms of its intellectual uh, content that says, well, if you're going to remove discrimination, don't just substitute a lesser form of discrimination mm. uh, in there. And um, we're confident that that will be the case, that um, uh, we have now introduced and second read the bill. It will be debated in the next sitting week, and uh, we're hopeful, in fact, we're quite hopeful, that based on that, that uh, the bill will turn into law sooner rather than later. Uh, Martin, one of the organisations you said was not faith-based. Who is that? Uh, there's a. Uh, they're based in Bendigo. Now you've, you've put me on the spot. I should have got my name. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. Quite all right. <laughs> we like them anyway. It's yeah, okay. we do. Look, it's, it's an interesting time, I would guess, because there's probably a lot of um, a lot of couples listening who, indeed, may be uh, long-term foster carers of children. Um, who are in same-sex relationships, and there's been no barriers to foster care. We've talked a lot on this program over past years about uh, uh, the various organisations who've called on LGBT couples to to take on foster care. How likely is it that those people who have long-term foster children will be able to adopt? Uh, isn't, isn't it odd that we, the state, uh, say to LGBTI couples and families, please take uh, the children that are our responsibilities as the state, the wards, the people that we need to put into foster care. In a sense, here, have the broken family, but you can't have legal recognition of your own. And leave aside the mixed messages of that. Um, the, the overwhelming principle of what we will be saying in this legislation is it's not gender, it's not sexual identity, it is the interests of the child yes. that are yes. the determining factor. And I don't want to sound like I'm getting old and conservative in my old age, but surely it is in the interest of the child to be part of a loving, caring family unit. And families come in all sorts of shapes, sizes and colours these days. Yes. Uh, as, we, as this law needs to catch up with the way in which blended families have emerged, uh, uh, surrogacy, uh, assisted reproduction. There are so many ways families can come together now. And surely, as we saw from the um, report tabled this week, the growing number of uh, lesbian families in particular that are using assisted reproduction yes. technology is, is growing steadily. So this issue is just going to grow and grow. So whether it's foster families, whether it's uh, families using a, a surrogacy or... Um, assisted reproduction, whatever mechanism that that family comes together, the, the only guide for the courts and the government processes should be what's in the interests of that child. So, Martin, the bill the bill has now been tabled, so debate occurs in, what, in a couple of weeks' time? Yep, uh, the week after next, and uh, we're confident that it will pass the lower house. Yep, and, and our listeners will, uh, are welcome to come to Parliament to actually sit in the gallery and, and observe and listen mm. to the debate. Absolutely, and um, uh, they're more than welcome, and you can live stream it if you're uh, really bored. On Great. 
<laughs> well, I think this will be of some interest to our members of our community. Absolutely, so, to people so listening I can see this that morning. people would actually want to listen. My, my only other question before I let you go, and I know that um, Pete wants to ask you something as well, is um, really what, what indication are you getting from the opposition benches about their intentions to vote? How, how do you think this will go in, in Parliament? Uh, the opposition all the, and the crossbench parties have all asked for briefings on the bill. That's and great. And we'll be providing those next week. And, and we're confident that two things will happen. That firstly, they'll recognise that this was an explicit election commitment that we gave as to the most comprehensive LGBTI quality policy that any party had given in an election. So we've got a mandate for this. And then secondly, I'm sure when they see the common sense, sensible principles about recognition of the best interests of the child and recognising a loving environment in which that child is to be raised the guiding principle that they will see the sense that gender identity and sexuality bears no relationship to whether you're a good parent or not. Mm. It's the ability to provide a loving, caring Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I was, I was going to go down the same, the same, the same track as Tess, sort of about the, the support from opposition and minor parties, but I think we've covered that. Martin Foley, we're grateful for your time this morning. Uh, Thank you. Good luck with the, the passage of this bill, and we hope to, or these two bills, and we hope to talk to you in a couple of weeks when we're all popping champagne in celebration of the right no of Victoria same-sex couples to adopt. Thank you very much. Good on you. You're on Joy 94.9. This is a little part of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from On The Line, Pride at Swinburne. Recently, Swinburne University celebrated diversity with a day of pride. Vice-Chancellor Linda Christensen also announced that the uni will sponsor the 2015 Midsummer Festival, becoming the first uni in the country to financially support an LGBTI festival. Dean was there and caught up with Geoffrey Smart, Vice President of International and Students to find out why Swinburne considered the LGBTI community so important. And you can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash on the line, or download it from the iTunes store. This is A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. It's Thursday the 8th of October 2015. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today. Now today we're going to check out what happened yesterday at Swinburne University. Paige Phoenix sang. Paige Phoenix will start this little package. And then you'll hear from the Vice-Chancellor of the University, Linda Christensen, and she made a very big announcement. here this afternoon, I can't help but smile and feel a strong sense of pride from being part of such a supportive community. Our Swinburne community consists of students and staff who represent a wide array of genders, gender expressions, sexual orientations and identities, ethnicities and beliefs. In order to nurture 
Our supportive and inclusive culture, we need to maintain an environment that is safe, flexible, and fair. This is why we have a deep commitment to working with our LGBTIQ community. In June this year, Swinburne became the first Australian university to declare its support for marriage equality in Australia. Many people have congratulated me about that, and it is a moment that we're very proud of. But in actual fact, it was simply a bloody obvious thing to do. Our pride at Swinburne Strategic Action Plan is another way we promote greater visibility and awareness of these issues experienced by our LGBTIQ staff and students. Today, it gives me great pleasure to announce a new initiative that further demonstrates our commitment to promoting a culture of respect, diversity, and inclusion. Swinburne is now a partner of Midsummer. Victoria's... Victoria's premier LGBTIQ festival and an annual community celebration of arts, culture, and sport. We're very proud to be the first tertiary education provider to become a Midsummer partner. This is a wonderful and exciting opportunity for Swinburne to support the wider community. I would like to extend a special thank you to our Pride Committee for their work in making this event happen. It's events like Pride Day that give us a chance to stop and pause and celebrate diversity together on campus. And I really hope you enjoy today's festivities. I'm at Swinburne Pride Day and Geoffrey Smart is with me. He is the Vice President of International and Students. Geoffrey, tell me exactly what that means. <laughs> it's a great title, isn't it? Hi, Dean. Um, I look after all of our international engagement, recruit all of our international students, and then look after all of our students, domestic students, international students, making sure they're getting through their course, they're orientated, and then they're graduated at the other end. You're the big version of a babysitter, I guess. Um, uh, I've just been looking around the campus. There's sort of accommodation in amongst, uh, peppered in amongst the campus, and it's a little bit all over the place. Um, how do people navigate this space? Yeah, that's a really good point. We're really lucky that we live in Hawthorne Village, so, you know, around Glenferry Road. Um, so that really adds something to the student life. You can, you can come on campus and do whatever you have to do and then nick off and get a coffee down Glenferry Road if you want to. Um, but it's actually a really compact campus. Right. And and so um, students typically, if they're international students, they'll stay right in the heart of the campus. Um, they might rent um, around here. But it, no, it's a lovely, really vibrant, but very small campus. We keep hearing about the importance of international students to our tertiary uh, education sector. It's clearly an important component of uh, Swinburne. Um, tell me how you, I guess, market the organisation to uh, a world, to a globe. Yeah, it's a really good point, isn't it? Because the world's really, really big. Um, well, universities in Melbourne, Swinburne is, is one of them, have been in this game from the, since the early 1990s. And so we have a whole range of partnerships in countries as, wide, you know, as broad as from Brazil to China, um, from the Middle East to the UK. Um, so partnering with universities to sort of set up programs where our students might spend two years in one university and two years in the other university. Um, is a really big way of recruiting students. We have uh, pathway programs, so students studying part of their, their sort of um, 
the equivalent of year 12, if you like, right. in China. Yep. Um, and then they hop on the plane and they come here to do their degree. So there's all sorts of ways that we reach a really broad audience. But one of, one of the really interesting things about international education in our country at the moment is the, the value of it to the economy um, and to the universities. But now we're all starting to partner in student mobility. So sending our students, as many as possible, out overseas um, so that they can have a semester of their Australian university experience anywhere in the world. Now that provides them with a much more uh, international focus and a, a broader understanding of how the world works and how we in Australia fit into that space. Yeah. Um, I know that Swinburne is particularly geared uh, around tech and our new Prime Minister is particularly focused on that. Uh, Swinburne's going to play a much bigger part in that equation um, going forward. Yeah, we'd really like to. In fact, we're launching a, a, a sort of a policy initiative at the moment, a discussion around what would really good industry and innovation policy, federal government policy, um, look like to really, I guess, um, what's the word, to really enhance the ability for industry and researchers to come together and work on problems that are both academically interesting but will help our, our um, businesses become more productive in a, in a global economy. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the stuff that the new Prime Minister's been saying so far have been really, really positive, actually. Now, we're here at Pride Day at Swinburne. Um, this is uh, to launch a new association with the Midsummer Festival and Swinburne University. It's the first time a university has uh, delved into their pockets uh, to fund an external festival. Um, I am very excited by this. I don't think I've ever seen um, uh, money handed over to a, uh, a fringe group like uh, gays and lesbians uh, to celebrate diversity. Yeah, well, I'm pretty appalled that we're the first university to be doing this. I mean, there's nine, eight others in, in Melbourne, so get with the program, people. Um, but, look, um, uh, universities are huge communities of students, staff, researchers, alumni, industry partners, and guess what? There's a whole bunch of LGBTI people in that, in that, broader, um, that broader scope of audience. So this is part of us saying to our community inside the university and then to demonstrate to the wider community um, that we really support what Midsummer stands for. And why is that important? Well, I think that institutions... Well, I guess that organisations, all organisations, need to, be, need to demonstrate really obviously and loudly the importance of um, celebrating diversity. Yeah, it makes businesses more productive. So for our staff and our students, for me as a gay man, it makes me really proud that we're, you know, um, supporting Midsummer next year, but also so that we can demonstrate to the football, the sporting associations, to government, to community organisations, to the police, the government, that this organisation is behind what Midsummer stands for. It's the second year in a row that Swinburne has done a Pride Day. Um, what can we expect today? Well, we have. Um, we're going to be uh, announcing our partnership with uh, Midsummer. Um, we've invited Jason Ball, the, um, the out-and-proud footballer, to come along and talk to staff and students about his experience. And we've got pa uh, Paige Phoenix, the transgender uh, performer, who's going to be entertaining us. But actually, when I was thinking about this earlier, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like an evolution of the Midsummer Carnival. Um, I went to the first few Midsummer Carnivals, and there's that feeling of, you know, um, celebration, of camaraderie, of I'm surrounded by people like me. Um, when you hold an event like this within the university community, it's like a little mini midsummer, but at your employer's, at, at, the, at the workplace. It's yeah. amazing. 
And we've got stalls set up. Uh, Joy's here, Midsummer's here, Enough is here, um, Headspace is here and others. Um, it's a real one-stop shop for uh, students to find out what's going on in the community and to access some of those resources. Yeah, absolutely. Whether they are out and proud already or whether they're just exper- experimenting with their, um, with their sexuality or their identity. Um, and university is a, a, a hotbed for that sort of stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It really is a time when you're... Yeah, sort of spreading your wings, I guess. Um, I just love it when we have a when we have a, um, a queer department stand at orientation. It'll be surrounded by students who are really happy to. And then at the end of the session, when they're packing up, a few nervous little students will pop up and grab a brochure. Right. They weren't brave enough to do yeah, it when yeah, it was yeah. set up. So. Look, I uh, remember my university days. It's where I came out, um, and it's where many people uh, find themselves, uh, having left home and and starting to further their education and their uh, broader sense of self. Um, It's an important time for people, and um, it's great that uh, Swinburne is a part of it here today. Yeah, thank you, and it's wonderful to see Joy FM back again. You were here last year to celebrate our first one, so let's see you next year at the third one. Jeffrey Smart, thank you very much for joining us on Joy. No worries, Dean, thank you. You're on Joy 94.9, and this is A Little Pot of Joy with Andrea and Alice. Up next from Being There, Done That, The Calendar. Chris, Gordon and Phil discuss all things past and present. Last week was Mental Health Week, seniors, the Seniors Festival, and on the 10th, the Big Northside Bazaar at the Laird Hotel. On the 7th of October, 1798, Bass and Flinders set off to find out if Van Diemen's Land was part of the mainland. Bass was rumoured to be one of us. Captain Cook landed on New Zealand on the 8th of October, 1769, and mapped both islands. I mean, this is some colonial history for us. Just a timely reminder, perhaps, that both of these countries actually had people already living there who already knew what the land looked like. So we didn't really need maps, but thanks anyway, Captain Cook. On the 4th of October... (laughs) (laughs) She snapped, ladies and gentlemen, and others. But you were so serious. (laughs) (laughs) That's all, folks. We're done. Andrew is dead. Rest in peace. On the 4th of October, 1582, Pope Gregory declared that the 4th will become the 15th to bring the year more into alignment with the phase of the planets and the sun and the moon, thus starting the Gregorian calendar, which we still use today. Good to know that the Pope did something useful once. And you can listen to the entire podcast by downloading it from the Joy website, joy.org.au forward slash been there, done that, or download it from the iTunes store. You're listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. You're with Been There, Done That with Gordon, Paul and Phil. And Phil, yes. And we've got a great program lined up, got all sorts of bits and pieces of news and things that have happened in the history that have affected us as we live today. That's right. On the 7th of October in uh, 1798, um, Bass and Flinders set off to find out whether Van Diemen's Land was part of the mainland. Yes, and they found that it wasn't, so that politically meant that uh, Britain, to keep the French out, had to plant the flag down here as well. Because it wasn't part of New South Wales. Well, they always felt that there was no um, water between the two places, didn't they? It was part of the mainland, and once they put the flag up in where they were in around Sydney, that was it. They didn't have to worry anymore. But they decided they better go down and check it just to make sure it was an island, whether it was connected to the mainland. Yeah, because no British navigator had sailed from the west through the strait and the only person that did would have been uh, Abel Tasman and then the French uh, would have, I think it was La Perouse, I'm not sure, 
they actually landed on the west coast yeah, of Tasmania. Yeah, and there's quite a few places in Tasmania that do have French names in them. Yes. Don Castro State, or is that in, yes. that's in, that's in, uh, that's in South Australia, though, Don Castro State. And L'Astrolabe uh, Bay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's quite a few French names down in Van Diemen's Land as it was, but now Tasmania. We've got a French bakery in Blackburn. Have you? Oh. That was founded by the French. <laughs> oh. It's not mentioned in the history of Blackburn, so it's probably not. No, so. the, but they actually set out on the 7th of October 1798, and by January the following year they had completed their circumnavigation of the island, and Governor Hunter, who was the governor of New South Wales, subsequently named the stretch of water between the mainland and Van Diemen's Land as Bass's Strait, and it was later to be known as Bass Strait. But, of course, Bass gets all the kudos because he was the leader of the expedition, wasn't he? Yes, and, of course, there's suspicions about their relationship. Yeah, well, well the, there's a suspicion that Bass could have been one of us, actually, yes. The, it's yeah. never been mentioned, but he never married, and um, yeah. So. And on, on on such a small boat together, mm. but uh, in the navy, yeah, well. in the navy, yeah. <laughs> and, and um, of course, Flinders was a great cartographer and uh, was able to give us a very good map of Tasmania. Well, he's actually the first person officially to use the title Australia. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. he, he named the place Australia, Australis. He called it. But and of course, I can imagine on their way down to Tassie, they were singing all about the bass. All about the bass, yes. Our friend Megan Trainer <laughs> From Megan Trainer, yeah, yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> and, and, of course, before then, probably the greatest cartographer the world had ever seen, mm-hmm. um, certainly up to that time, of course, was James Cook. Yes. And it was during this week that yeah. he actually landed in New Zealand. He, so he not only circumnavigated both islands and has a strait named after him between the two of them. That's right. Uh, but he actually landed and... He did a lot of investigation in, in New Zealand, didn't he? He did, yes. He went both North and South Island. He did a lot of investigation, especially amongst the Maori people as well. Well, well the legend has it that he, he released pigs onto the island. I'm not sure whether that's actually uh, correct, but at some stage, whalers or somebody did release pigs. Oh, right. And they spread across the country. Yeah, and did that, that would have given them extra food anyhow, wouldn't it? Well, Just yeah. wondering what the pigs did. Hmm? Well, strange way to claim a land. Yes. Well, well, a well, well, like most creatures that we let out over there, they did damage. See, well, they, we, yeah. we gave them deer, which has done Im- irreparable damage. And didn't we give them possums? Yeah, we gave them possums, and we also... What if they want some cane toads? I oh, no. don't think they want cane toads. <laughs> and no. we gave them wallabies as yeah. well, yeah. But, uh, of course, Cook was on his way back from visiting Tahiti for the transit of Venus, yes. and then when he left uh, New Zealand... He kept sailing west, and Mr Howe on his ship sighted the first point of Australia, yeah. didn't he? Now, and the other thing a lot of people don't realise about Cook is that, believe it or not, after all his voyages and that, he suffered seriously from seasickness, mal de mer. Did he really? He certainly did, yes. And uh, at the start of a voyage, the first few weeks were hell for him. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a very nice thing to have, a seasickness. Yeah. But, yeah. but if you ever get some books to read about him, fascinating reading. Yeah. And, of course, we've got his cottage here, although he never ever set foot here. No, apparently it was his father's cottage, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Must have been very short. Yeah, well, they're very... They, it's they a they very were, small cottage. They're very small cottage, yeah. yeah. Well, well, people were smaller in those days. Yeah, yeah. But um, he, he was, as you say, he was a great cartographer. He was mapped the whole of the east coast of Australia, didn't he? Yeah, and he did. He, another feat that he did, too, is before the Battle of Quebec, where the British uh, stormed up the hills and caught the French by surprise and beat them in Canada, 
he went out and did all the cartography there mainly at night uh, getting all the soundings so not only did he map the coastline and that but he did the soundings where rocks and that were mm. so that they could um bring the boats up uh, up really close to shore yeah. under the guns of the French uh, up on top. Yeah, 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 yeah. A very clever man, Captain Cook. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, but and came to a very devised end where you have seen where he died, haven't you? I've didn't you been feel? snorkelling in this little cove in Hawaii and there's a little white obelisk, mm-hmm. probably, yeah. and just a little plaque on it saying this is where the cannibals ate Captain Cook. <laughs> But but the first, he he did that because he had an ability to placate locals. I mean, the only whites that had landed in in his first landing, they landed up uh, shooting some Maoris in New Zealand. So mm. he wasn't that popular. But the next time, he actually went ashore himself and was able to calm things down. Well, I've spent yeah. a bit of time in Hawaii, and it would take a lot to upset the Hawaiians today. They might have been a little more angry in in previous centuries. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. They're pretty laid back because of the country where they live, isn't it? That's oh, it, the weather and it's everything. Too hot to get upset. Too, <laughs> too hot to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. but it's uh, surprising how these things all happen. Um, well, they're part of our history. Yeah. You see, the other thing about what Cook being uh, okay is because a he was scientific. He understood about how scurvy was caused. He wasn't the only person, but he did something about it. And then it was his teamwork with Joseph Banks, hmm. who, although he was a bit of an arrogant pig, uh, <laughs> but he had scientific Allegedly. he had scientific knowledge. And what was what they his published work when he went back to Britain that, you know, focused on, you know, because up until that time, they, they'd only discovered the West Coast and it was, you know... Was that sand, do, sand dunes yeah. in the West, yes. And yeah. so they were able to point out, oh, no, this Southland we discovered and they brought stuff back. So, and, of course, yeah. Banks, Bankshires are named after him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I've got a question about Mr Bass. Was Bass Strait named ironically? No, I don't think so. Well, you're saying <laughs> the bass was <laughs> not exactly straight. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. <laughs> boom, boom. So which one's straight? Well, well, yes, yes. Bass is bass straight, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And we're continuing here because it was on this day, actual October the 5th in 1582, that Pope Gregory declared that the October the 5th will become October the 15th. So there was 10 days passed over. Ah, uh, well, yeah. It wasn't, they were just passed over. They were still there, but yes. they, were, they just moved the date to bring the year into a more suitable time frame with the right phases of the moon and the sun and everything. We're a little more civilised these days. We have leap seconds. Oh, God, So yes. the atomic clock can The adjust. atomic clock tells yeah. us what day it is, yeah. But you see, they had to then because the average people didn't actually bother about dates. No. They ran their life according to when spring started or when the rains came That's or when, right. when yeah. the harvest had done. Yeah. And the problem with the Julian calendar was that there was a creep forward so that spring would be starting you know, a couple of days earlier each year. Each and year. so over and were, time you'd have, you know, Christmas had moved from winter to the, in the northern hemisphere to summer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so they had an astronomer, Aloysius Lilius, because that year the Julian calendar was slightly long, causing the vernal equinox to slowly advance earlier in the calendar year. And they used the equinoxes as planting times. Yes. And that's what they, that was the main thing for the equinoxes. We still have creep forwards. Yes. Every, every time I get in a plane flying economy class, I think of all those creeps up forward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not fair, I tell you. Very good. Boom, boom. Yeah.
1582, the Gregorian calendar was actively adopted for the first time. It required an adjustment to correct 11 accumulated days from the Julian calendar. The day following the Thursday, the 4th of October, 1582, was Friday, the 15th of October, effective in most Catholic countries such as Italy, Poland, Spain and Portugal. Non-Catholic countries took a fair while to um, move over to the Gregorian calendar. The worse well, than being in a different time zone, wouldn't it? Well, we've yeah. just had our change over to daylight saving. Imagine losing fifteen days. But but if you're a historian studying documents, first uh, documents of that period, especially say British history, right? Well, the the Brits didn't change over till seventeen fifty two, I think, right, mid eighteenth yeah. century. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you've got to allow for that dis dis. So when if you're reading a date, you've got to now realise right. it's a Julian date, mm-hmm. and then you've got to alter it around. If you if you read if you're looking for birth dates and things in um, like. Wikipedia, they will tell you the actual Julian date of some of them. If see, because the Russians didn't change to the Gregorian calendar until 1927 or somewhere, and they were using the Julian calendar and or their own calendar. And if you're looking for somebody's birthday in Russia, they will give you the two dates: what yeah. the old one was and what the current one is. Or they use a little uh, little italic JL, and that indicates mm, mm. that the dates yeah. yeah it became quite confusing for people that were born in russia to know what the actual date was in the gregorian I'm confused now so they you're confused now That's you're right. always confused phil well that helps you've been listening to a little pot of joy with andrea and alice we've come to the end of another evening and uh, you can find more of the complete podcasts on the joy website joy.org.au forward slash no <laughs> <laughs> just joy.org.au <laughs> And you can download them for free from the iTunes store. You've been listening to A Little Pot of Joy, the podcast program. See joy.org.au and click on our podcast link to subscribe to your favourite podcasts free. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.